Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you, the great God of heaven and earth, the one who has all authority, all wisdom, all might. Father, we bow ourselves, we prostrate ourselves before you. And we ask, Lord, please help us this morning. Help me and help all of us to hear your word, to love your word, to appreciate who you are, to love you and glorify you in all things. Father, you are worthy and you alone. May you receive all the glory and the praise from this people and all people this morning who are proclaiming your gospel, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, <clears throat> last week we began to consider uh, really a, a pivotal point in this first letter, excuse me, letter to um, the Romans from Paul. In the first chapter, um, we had really reached the apex of the introduction, which is the gospel in verses 16 and 17. And, and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save and to save everyone who believes. Because in this gospel, there is righteousness to save. The righteousness of God that he makes available to all who will believe his word. And that righteousness becomes credited to your account by faith alone. There's no work that we can do to be justified, to be put into right standing with God. He declares us righteous by simply believing his word. And when you do that, the righteousness of his son is credited to your account. So this is really the, the linchpin, the center of this entire letter to the Romans. And then immediately after that, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Whoa, the wrath of God. And the, really from verses 18 through 32, Paul is expounding this idea of the wrath of God, what it is and how serious it is and who it affects. Because, brothers and sisters, we cannot understand the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of God himself without understanding, first, the bad news. So, the intent in all of this is that we might understand and appreciate our great salvation. So, there were three points that we looked at last week, uh, really about this wrath. The first was the reality of the wrath. God's wrath is real. Why? Because God is holy. That means that he burns against all that is unholy. He hates all that is wicked and unrighteous because his nature, which is holy, thrice holy, 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 
demands it. And he will consume all who are ungodly and unrighteous. We looked at the target of the wrath. It targets everyone because all of us, each one of us is ungodly and unrighteous. That means that we lack reverence for God. And that means that we lack reverence for his law. We have the wrong attitude about God. And we have the wrong deeds, the wrong behaviors, the wrong actions, because we're in wrong relationship to God. And then the third is the reason for the wrath. You know the reason for the wrath of God? Because God has made himself known. How? The invisible God has made himself known through what is visible, through what's been created. So creation reveals God as creator. And man knows it. The scripture says that man knows he's seen it. It's plain to him because God has put it in him. He observes it in creation. But what does he do with this knowledge of God? He suppresses it. He holds it back. He presses it down. In other words, he won't let it come forth from his life and return back to God. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning. What does it mean to suppress and what does it mean to glorify God? So there's three points that I want to note for you this morning in our text. And this text uh, this morning will be three verses, verses 21 through 23. And the three points are these. The first is how man suppresses the truth of God. We're told in verse 18 that he's a suppressor. Well, how does he suppress specifically? We get the answer. So the first is how man suppresses the truth. The second is how God reveals his wrath against those who suppress the truth. How God reveals his wrath. And the third is the evidence that man is under the wrath of God. Okay, so the first is how man suppresses the truth of God. Look at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul starts by saying, although they knew God, past tense, they knew. He already established that in the first three verses, 18 through 20. He says, God has clearly revealed himself. He, in fact, he's re revealed three things, we're told. The truth, in verse 18. We're told that he revealed the things that may be known of God, in verse 19. And in verse 20, he's revealed his invisible attributes, literally the invisible things of God. And then he goes on to say his eternal power and Godhead. So God has revealed, number one, that he exists. Number two, something of his eternal attributes. How? In creation, by what is observed, by what has been made. I mentioned last week, um, John chapter 1, where John says, speaking of Jesus, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And what does that refer to? This light, the light that lights every man. This is the light of conscience. Conscience. You know what conscience means? It means with knowledge. Con with science, knowledge. So every man has the knowledge of God as creator. The question is, what does he do with it? And we know here that he suppresses it. And so they knew God, but they did not, notice, glorify him as God, nor were thankful. And here we have, loved ones, two specific charges which God is bringing against all humanity. Two charges. Number one, he doesn't glorify God as God. Number two, he's not thankful to God. He doesn't show thanksgiving. This is what it means for man to suppress the truth from verse 18. And this is what draws the wrath of God upon all men. They don't glorify God and they don't thank him. You know, to understand, I think, what it means to glorify, not to glorify God, we have to understand what the glory of God is. What does it mean to glorify God? The word glory in the New Testament, doxa, is very closely related to another word, dokeo. Dokeo means opinion. It's a verb. It means to have an opinion. So the idea is glory is to have a good opinion of somebody, to honor them, to pay homage, homage to somebody. Okay? So to have a good opinion. That's the primary meaning in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the most common word for glory is, I'm probably going to mispronounce this because I don't speak Hebrew, chabod, chabod. And it primarily means weight or heaviness 
weight or heaviness. And so the idea is substance, dignity, worth. In fact, this particular word chabod is used in Genesis 31 to describe Jacob's substance, which was what? His flocks and his herds. So that was the glory of Jacob. But chabod is also used at times in the Old Testament to describe God's brightness, his radiance. This is also another important facet of the glory of God. Take, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the ark is brought into the temple. You remember that the priests and the Levites, they bring the ark into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And we're told in verses 10 and 11 of 1 Kings chapter 8, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see that? This is what's been described as the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. That's not a word that you find in the, in the scripture, but it describes this brightness. It describes this glory. In fact, it was blinding glory, so blinding that the priests couldn't continue to minister there anymore. So the glory of God is his praise. It's his honor. It's his substance and dignity and worth. It's the blinding brightness of his holiness, of his purity. So when Paul says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, he means that they didn't praise him. They didn't esteem him highly or magnify him, lift him up in their thinking and in their words. They don't reverence him. In fact, they have no fear of God before their eyes at all. That's why he starts out in verse 18 by saying they're ungodly and unrighteous. You see, although men sees God's invisible attributes in creation, his goodness, his power, his wisdom, his beauty, they don't acknowledge the dignity of worth and worth of God in all things. Think about it this way. In creation, God has revealed many of his invisible attributes. And what are they? Well, taken together, they describe really who God is. They describe his nature. So you could say that the sum and substance of God's attributes is who he is. It's his glory. Okay? So when man clearly sees the invisible attributes of God in creation and suppresses it, what is he doing? He's suppressing God's glory. He's failing to glorify God. You may recall the doxology that we referenced last week in Romans 11, verse 36, where Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. See, when God shines the light of his knowledge as creator upon man, man is to channel that glory back to God. We talked about this a little bit last week. But he doesn't. When he suppresses, he, it's like he short circuits. He won't return the glory back to God. Or like a black hole, he just sucks the glory in, but he, he won't return it. You know what's amazing, brothers and sisters? In all of physical creation, there is only one who refuses to glorify God, and that's man. In all of God's physical creation, only man refuses to glorify God. All the rest of creation glorifies God all the time. Physical creation, the demons don't. When's the last time you saw a flower or looked up at the heavens and saw the sun, the moon, and the stars failing to glorify God? They don't. They radiate his brightness back to him. They do what they were designed to do. But man who is the pinnacle, we're really told, of God's creation because he was created in the image of God, fails to glorify him. He refuses. He puts God out of his mind. He knows, but he says, I don't want you, God. Do you see why that's such an affront to God? Why that's so offensive to God? <laughs> no wonder the wrath of God abides on men. So to glorify God is to return his glory to him. It is, <sighs> therefore, in the opposite, to suppress and refuse to allow God's glory to return, to imprison it, if you will, to incarcerate it. That's why when Paul says to the Corinthians, therefore, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
even in the smallest, most trivial things that you can think of that you do throughout your day, God wants glory in those things. He wants you to acknowledge him, thank him, praise him. Because without his grace, we all would be consumed now. We wouldn't be alive anymore. We could do a whole study, really, on what it means to glorify God. But I just want to give you one example that I think is important here. And that's the example that you'll find in Joshua chapter 7 about Achan. Joshua chapter 7 about Achan. Now, um, in Joshua 6, you might remember that God gives Israel a great victory in a town called Jericho. But God warns the people not to take of the, what he calls the accursed things, when they go through Jericho and, and take their victory. He says, if you do, if anyone does, then your camp, your entire camp will be accursed for the sake of whoever takes the accursed thing. And then in chapter 7, you remember Israel goes to battle against the next city as they have crossed the Jordan. They're coming in to take possession of the land that God has promised them. And the next city is called Ai. And Israel fully expects that they're going to have victory in Ai just like they did in Jericho. So they don't send as many soldiers and they go in and they are shamefully chased out and killed. They have a shameful defeat. Joshua falls on his face before the Lord. says, Lord, why have you brought your people out of Egypt just to be destroyed? And God tells Joshua, it's because someone has taken of the accursed thing that you were defeated. You can't stand before your enemies. Get that accursed thing out. And so Joshua systematically calls the families and the tribes and brings them forward. And he finally gets to a man called Achan. And this is what he says in Joshua 7, 19. He says, now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Notice, Confessing our sins to God gives him glory. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. And you know what happened next? All Israel took Joshua and his wife, his children, his whole family, all his animals, all his possessions, and they stoned them. And then they burned them with fire. God's wrath consumed Achan and others around him for his sin. You say, that seems harsh. Yeah. Well, you know what? The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve, all of us, for our sin. We deserve to be consumed. But God was glorified in Achan's public confession of his sin. And so God is glorified with our confession. When we confess our sin, and you might say, well, why? Well, how does confession glorify God? Well, think about the circuit again. What does confession mean? Confession means to say the same thing as. Homo logeo. Homo, as in same as, like homogenized milk. The cream and the milk are mixed together, homogenized. Same logo, word, right? In the beginning was the logos. So same word. God says, you're guilty because you've sinned. He speaks it from heaven. When you confess, you are saying the same thing back to God. You're returning the same word back to him. You see how that glorifies him? Confession glorifies God. So man does not glorify God. And then this next part in Romans 1, nor were they thankful. Nor were they thankful. Why is it that God indicts man for a lack of thanksgiving? Think about what is it that God provides all men? I mean, are all men recipients of the goodness of God at some level? Absolutely. Think of common grace, right? He sends his rain upon the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to shine upon those who are evil as well as good. Common grace blessings. The scripture says that God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. There's a really poignant example in the scripture of this 
thanksgiving and lack thereof. In Luke chapter 17, I'd invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Luke chapter 17. And this is the account of the, the ten lepers who were cleansed. I'm just going to read verses 11 through 19. Now it happened, this is Luke 17, 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Ten lepers. Only one returned to give thanks. Nine were not thankful. Nine were eager to get back to their lives. God had given them what they wanted. And now they could get on with what they wanted, which was their own life. They were suppressors of the truth. Christ had healed their bodies, but not their souls. The one who was healed truly, physically and spiritually, was the one who came back and gave thanks. Children, let me ask you this. When someone gives you a nice gift, is it polite to uh, ignore them and pretend that they haven't given you anything? It's not, is it? It's rude. It's offensive. How much more the God who gives us life and breath and every good thing every day and we turn our backs on him. Do you know what God thinks about Thanksgiving? Turn to Psalm 50 for a moment. Psalm chapter 50. It's a great psalm. In Psalm 50, verse 14. Here's what the Lord says through the psalmist. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. See, this is written in the context of the wicked who offer uh, all the right sacrifices externally. They bring all their offerings as they should, but their hearts are far from God. They're totally wicked in their practice, their behavior. They evidence that they don't know God, but they bring the sacrifice. And God says, you want to give me a sacrifice that I'll pay attention to? Give me thanksgiving. Offer me thanksgiving. Look down at verse 23. At the end of this psalm, God says, whoever offers praise glorifies me. So you see what's being offered that God wants? Praise, thanksgiving, they go hand in hand. This is the heart that God is interested in. A heart that is thankful, a heart that praises him daily, throughout the day, constantly. Recognizing him in all things, worshiping him in your spirit, with your inner person fully engaged. That's what it means to have a communion, have a relationship with the Lord. But man as a suppressor, he won't glorify and he won't thank God. That's really our first point. How he suppresses, he won't glorify and he won't thank God. He doesn't want God in his thoughts. He has no cause for thanks. In other words, when God presents the truth about himself to sinful man, sinful man lacks a proper response. He doesn't respond the way he should respond. The correct response for someone who sees the handiwork of God in every part of his creation is to glorify him, to thank him. Even if you don't know that God fully, here's the point. You have enough light to keep you from idolatry. So that's why he's without excuse. Do you see how God's wrath is just for coming down on sinful man, 
on those who suppress the truth. I mean, here we have God who is the most excellent, transcendent, beautiful, holy being of all. And he's treated spitefully. He's ignored. This is a heinous crime on a cosmic level, worthy of death. That's why all stand guilty and condemned before him. So man suppresses by failing to glorify and by not giving thanks. Now, how is it that God reveals his wrath against these suppressors? This is our second point. How does God reveal his wrath against the suppressors? Look back at Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What happens to the ungodly and unrighteous man who doesn't glorify God and give thanks? He becomes futile, futile, literally empty, useless, unprofitable. Where? In his thinking, thoughts, via logismos, his imaginations, his reasoning. What's Paul saying here? Man becomes unable to think and reason correctly. In other words, his mind becomes non-functioning. Now, not altogether non-functioning. I mean, there are brilliant scientists and philosophers and people of every um, discipline who are not godly at all. They don't know God as Savior. They are ungodly and unrighteous, and yet they have powers of reasoning. They have powers of intellectual capacity that are incredible. So Paul isn't saying that man in sin can't think at all. What he's saying is he can't think clearly about God and about spiritual things. To those things, he is blind. It's like Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have a spiritual capacity to understand because he's dead spiritually. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought of a person's disbelief of the gospel as a form of the wrath of God upon them? When a person says, my God is not a God of wrath, my God would never send anyone to hell. He is loving and ultimately in the end, he's going to save everybody. What is that? Vain imaginations, futile thinking, empty musings. It's the wrath of God abiding on them. They become futile or they became futile in their thoughts. And then notice the next part. And their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the heart in scripture refers to the center of a person. It's his control center, if you will. It's the seat of his affections. It's what controls and drives his mind, his affections, and his will. That's his heart. It's the center of who he is. It's what he really cares about, if you want to boil it down simply, and what drives him. So what does Paul mean? Well, he says darkness. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So darkness in Scripture, when you read that, really means two things. One, darkness means a lack of knowledge of God. And number two, it means moral evil. And I think both are in view here. It's like a mist that descends from heaven upon a person and blinds their minds and blinds their hearts so that all they want to do is evil. The Greek word skotizo, darkened, it sounds like our English word obscured, right? It's a darkness. Um, you remember in Acts 13, Elemis the sorcerer, interesting account with Paul, right? And uh, Elemis, we're told, is trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And Paul gets in Elemis' face and he says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud. This is Acts 13.10. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. What is that? Elemis was judged by God for trying to pervert the straight ways of the Lord, for trying to lead 
the proconsul, away from the faith. And so God reveals his wrath against Elymas in the form of blindness, physical blindness, a mist that descended on him. That is what happens, brothers and sisters, when a man suppresses the truth. <laughs> he becomes un una unable to think clearly, to reason clearly. His heart is foolish and darkened, and he begins to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. We're going to see that in detail as we keep going here, Lord willing. Um, their foolish hearts were darkened. The fool in Scripture is one who lacks knowledge, but here, and more importantly, it's one who is corrupt, one who is evil. Listen to Psalm 14. In fact, if you want to turn there, Psalm 14. We're just going to look at a few verses there. Psalm 14. You'll recognize this because this is a text that Paul repeats in Romans 3. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So note, first of all, where's the fool speaking? In his heart. And what does he say? There is no God. That's his profession. God doesn't exist. You see the suppression? We know that he knows God exists, but he puts God out of his mind. See, this is very important. Man lacks knowledge, not because he never got the knowledge. God gave it to him. He revealed himself through creation. But he, he, he knows it and he puts it out of his mind. That's why he lacks knowledge, because he's put it away from himself. Not because he never received it. He wasn't ignorant. And what's God's pronouncement on the fool? Not that he's ignorant and just needs to be taught better, but that he's evil in his practice. There's a darkened heart. Look, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works, meaning things that God absolutely detests, hates. There's none who does good. That means there's none who does good at any time. In other words, all that we do all the time is evil in the sight of God, apart from Christ in our natural condition. And sinful man, he thinks in the absolute reverse, doesn't he? I mean, he thinks of himself as basically good. If you go out on the street and you ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? Most people uh, will tell you, yeah, I mean, I'm not as uh, you know good as I could be. I'm certainly not as bad as I could be. I'm not a, you know, name your person who you could think of as a terrible, terrible person. But I'm basically good and I just make mistakes. I'm, I'm learning as I go. What does the scripture teach? Scripture teaches that man is basically evil and that he's not capable of producing any good. It's totally the opposite perspective. So this is a moral problem. This foolishness that God indicts us for is a moral problem. Their foolish heart was darkened. Now, with that context, listen to a familiar verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart, your control center that drives you, is deceitful. It won't guide you the way you expect it to. It'll lead you astray. What are we saying? We're saying it's like a person has a compass, but the compass is broken. It doesn't point true north anymore. So man is fundamentally lost. This is what lostness is. He doesn't know God because he doesn't want to know God. He's put him out of his mind. He's suppressed the truth. And he's lost and he's wicked. He's depraved. He's foolish. It's back to the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? And isn't this the prevailing notion of truth today, right? Truth is relative. You've got your truth. You do what's right for you. I'll do my truth, what's right for me. And in all the songs you hear, follow your heart. Right? And, and, and people think that they're doing the right thing by following their heart. They do follow their heart. But what they don't realize is they're under judgment. There's wrath that's being revealed against them when they do that. You know what's interesting about the way Paul describes these men, all humanity, whose minds are non-functioning, whose hearts are foolish and dark. Look back at verse 21 of Romans 1. 
He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but notice, became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then what does he say in the next verse? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Do you see how he's using the passive voice there? In other words, these are not things that men do directly. They're things that happen to them. So what is Paul doing here? I believe he is explaining how God reveals his wrath. And here's the concept. He reveals his wrath by giving men over to the consequences of their sin. You want to see the wrath of God in action? Here it is. He obscures clear thinking. He darkens their hearts. How? By turning them over to their own disease, which is called sin. Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember that we gave several examples of God's wrath demonstrated throughout the scripture. We looked at um, the curse of death, right, in the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed God. We looked at the great flood that wiped out all of humanity except for Noah and his family, eight souls. We looked at Sodom and Gomorrah where God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. We looked at the captivities of Judah, the northern, sorry, Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdom, how God carried them away as a judgment. And then, of course, at the cross, the supreme picture of God's wrath, where he poured out his own wrath against his son for all the sins of his people of all time. Those are all what we would call direct forms of the wrath or curse that God has pronounced. But here we have a little different kind of wrath in Romans 1. This is what theologians call the wrath of judicial abandonment, or just abandonment, leaving someone. This is where God removes his hand of restraint, his hand of grace, and allows man to do what his evil heart desires. Now, he doesn't completely abandon man. If he had completely removed his hand of restraint, you know what would happen? We would kill ourselves and we would kill everyone else. The bad news you hear about, the catastrophes, the disasters that men are responsible for in this world would abound exponentially. We would absolutely destroy ourselves were it not for the restraining hand of God's grace. So this is a form of his judgment. He pulls back his hand. He says, if you won't accept me, if you don't want me in your thinking, I'll give you over to the consequences of that sin. Let me give you an example. Think about the human immune system. Immune system. <laughs> it's in the news a lot today, right? What does the immune system do? Well, it protects your body from disease, basically. Uh, here's a quote from healthline.com website. Quote, your immune system is your body's version of the military, sworn to defend against all who threaten it, both foreign and domestic. It has some really interesting soldiers that help make this possible. Your immune system protects against disease, infection, and helps your body to recover after an injury, end quote. Now, this is super simplified, but these soldiers that are on the front lines are your white blood cells. They are the ones that charge into battle at any sign of trouble, okay? In other words, it's your God-given line of defense against invaders in your body. What would happen if your immune system became compromised? You'd become sick, wouldn't you? sicker and sicker, and disease would slowly take hold on your body. In a similar way, God is revealing his wrath by simply removing the restraints of his grace, the immune system function, if you will, that exposes man progressively to the ravaging effects of his own sinfulness. And the first thing that happens is this. Men become sick in their minds and in their hearts. What they think about, what they care about, This is what we call depravity, total depravity. The whole man is given over to sickness. What do you think is the prognosis, the outcome expected for someone who's been given over to reap the consequences of his own sinfulness? See, loved ones, this is the beginning of man's descent into the pit that leads to death. That's what we're talking about. One who can't think properly, one whose affections are distorted, will plunge himself into every kind of evil imaginable. Anything goes 
when the restraints are off. You want to see how this plays out? Look at verse 22. Here's an example right here. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Literally, professing themselves wise, they became fools. Moreno, morons. Here's evidence of someone whose mind is non-functioning and whose heart is darkened. They call themselves wise when they're actually fools. And let me ask you, is there any greater fool than the person who thinks he's wise when he's actually a fool? The fact that man is self-deceived while professing he's wise is evidence that he's under the wrath of God. This is the third point this morning. Evidence that man is under God's wrath. Listen to this uh, comment from Matthew Henry, our long since past brother who's with the Lord. But this is what he wrote in the 17th century. It has been observed that the most refined nations that made the greatest show of wisdom were the errantist, meaning the greatest fools in religion. The barbarians adored the sun and the moon, which of all others was the most specious idolatry, while the learned Egyptians worshipped an ox and an onion. The Grecians who excelled them in wisdom adored diseases and human passions. The Romans, the wisest of all, worshipped the Furies. And at this day, the poor Americans worship the thunder, while the ingenious Chinese adore the devil. Thus the world by wisdom knew not God. Matthew Henry is saying, the more wise the group of people, the greater the fools they are in religion. Worshipping animals and food and disease and all manner of created things. Today, brothers and sisters, what do we think is wise in our culture? Evolution? Science? We worship science, right? Big technology, syncretism, you heard of that? Syncretism is uh, where you try and take uh, differing belief systems and kind of meld them all together. Take the best of Christianity, take the best of Hinduism, take the best of Islam, put them all together. They're all good. They're all going to get you to your desired end, re end, end result. Kind of like that coexist bumper you've seen on, or coexist sticker you've seen on bumpers. I mean, that's the picture. That's syncretism right there. Psychology. Right, the power of self-help. There aren't many bookstores anymore, but when you go to one, I think there's like one in the valley, the self-help section is enormous, right? So I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, that there's no wisdom in science. There is, to the extent that it validates what's given us in scripture. What is science? Science is meant for man to discover this wonderful earth that God has made, to see the glory of God in what he's done and to praise him. That's the point, to take dominion of the earth. That was our creation mandate. What does the Bible say about wisdom? It says, let another man praise you, not your own mouth. Proverbs 27, 2. We don't profess our own wisdom. Why? Because we don't have any of our own. And Paul said to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 10, verse 12, for we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves, notice, by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. See, man uses the wrong standard. He measures himself against other men on the horizontal plane, not against the perfect standard, which is God, where he falls far short and is totally unwise. He's a fool. Who is wise then? Well, Paul answers that at the end of his uh, letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 27. He says, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Pretty simple, right? God alone is wise. And for us to become wise, we have to learn wisdom from God. We receive it from him. But here in Romans 1, this is the height of folly and stupidity. Professing themselves wise, they became fools. What is man doing when he professes himself wise? Is he not putting himself in the place of God who alone is wise? See, this is giving us new light on when we look at passages like you must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God. What makes a little child a little child? He is totally dependent on his parents. He has no resources of his own, and that includes wisdom. He needs his parents. We need our heavenly father. We totally depend on him as little children. And anyone who comes to God with their own wisdom, he rejects because God alone is wise. Evidence of man under God's wrath. Professing themselves wise, they became fools. 
Let's see a little bit more, one more verse on how this wrath of God works itself out. Look at verse 23 of Romans 1. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God. See, being unable to think clearly, being unable to feel with hearts toward God, sinful man professes his own wisdom and distorts the truth revealed by God, which is what? That God is incorruptible, not subject to decay like we are and like all of creation is because of sin. He is eternal. Paul says they changed the glory, or you might have a translation, exchange. That's a good translation too. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image which is corruptible. What does that mean? I mean, can man change the glory of God? The scripture teaches God is unchanging. He is forever the same yesterday as he is today as he is in the future. He is the unchanging God, incorruptible. So what does this mean that man changes the glory of God, of the incorruptible God? It means he does it in his thinking. He trades a right understanding of God as glorious in all his attributes. Again, back to creation. God putting his indivisible attributes on display for everyone to see. Man trades that knowledge of God for a corrupted understanding of God. An image, we're told, made like his own corrupted self and other beasts. What an affront to God. Why an image? Well, an image is something that has form. It has shape. It's something that man can wrap his mind around in his attempt to put God into a box. This is what God is like. This is what my God is like. You hear what I'm saying? This is how people talk, right? What are they doing? They're forming an image of what God is like. And don't miss the perversion here. Who was originally created as the image Man, right? Man was created in the image of God. And you see how man has inverted the relationship here in his sin? He says, God, you're going to be the image. You're going to be the copy. I'm going to create you as an image that's corrupted, that's made like me and like beasts. You ever wonder why God gave the second commandment? Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is why God gave the second commandment. You shall not create your own God in your mind or by your hand. Because ever since the fall, man is doing this. He is trading the right understanding of God for the lie. And God strictly forbids it. God is other brothers and sisters. It's a good way of putting it. He's not like us. And back in Psalm 50, when we were reading, there's a verse that says, you thought that I was altogether like you, God speaking to sinful man. We fashion God in a way that we can comprehend. We make him like us. He's not. He's separate from his creation. He's other. His ways are higher than our ways, just as the heavens are higher than the earth. What a grace that he sent us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, as somebody we can understand. He could have come and revealed himself in a way that we couldn't have understand, in a language we couldn't have understood, with examples, with gestures, in a form that we couldn't make any sense of, but he doesn't. He comes in the likeness of men. Christ emptied himself of his divine glory for a season to take a special form that we might relate to him and understand what he has to say. What a grace. This is the grace of God. You might be thinking... Uh, I don't carve golden images. <laughs> I don't have little statues that I worship. Okay, fine. But do you have your own ideas of what God is like that differ from the scripture, from what God has revealed himself to be in scripture? If you do, you are an idolater in God's eyes. You've broken the second commandment. 
Corrupted thinking in the mind, remember, always leads to corrupted understanding of who God is. That thinking is dishonoring to God. It robs him of his glory. It betrays the purpose for which we were created. Again, we were created as the image meant to reflect God's glory, to glorify him. So we're told that he changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Notice the downward progression of corrupted thinking. At first, God is like men, the pinnacle of God's creation. Then he degenerates in man's thinking to animals and even to creeping things. And by the way, that reference to creeping things is a direct reference to snakes. That's interesting. Who was it in the Garden of Eden who inhabited the snake to tempt Eve to turn them away from God? Was it not the devil? Man's God is a snake. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said. <laughs> That's it. There's children of God and children of the devil. Two classes of people in the whole world. Man in sin worships the evil one. In closing, I'd like to just give you one more illustration of someone who I think embodies verses 21 to 23 pretty well. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Four, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 28 through 33. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Daniel 4, 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon uh, and the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? <laughs> While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles feathers and his nails like birds claws. Wow. You know, what's interesting about King Nebuchadnezzar is to note the progression of corruption as we think about uh, this in context with Romans 1, 21 to 23. So we know Nebuchadnezzar, like all men, had an innate knowledge of God because God showed it to him in creation. We know, like all men, that he did not glorify God or give him thanks, and so the wrath of God abides on him. And what's the evidence of that for King Nebuchadnezzar? Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? <laughs> Operating with a non-functioning mind and a foolish heart. There it is. You know what's amazing is that profession was made after, after King Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed the power of God on several occasions. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, you might remember, interprets the king's dream, uh, which nobody else was able to interpret. And in Daniel 2.47, King Nebuchadnezzar confesses that Daniel's God is, quote, the God of gods, Lord of, Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Okay, there's data point one. Then in chapter three, when Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to obey the king's decree to bow down to that large statue that he had set up, either of himself or of a god, it was in the form of a man, we're told it had a head and chest and stomach and arms and legs and thighs and feet. When the friends would not worship, you remember the fiery furnace scene? King Nebuchadnezzar witnessed these men go into a furnace that was heated way beyond its normal heating capacity. And he saw a fourth man in there with the three, described like the son of man, the son of God. And 
what's his response? He says, this is God. And he makes a decree throughout his kingdom that no one can dishonor this God of Daniel. Okay. Then chapter four, the king has a second dream. And he knows because Daniel's already interpreted the first dream that Daniel can certainly interpret the second dream because he says that he perceives that Daniel has the, quote, spirit of the holy God in him. After all this, what do we know? King Nebuchadnezzar is still an idolater in his heart. And he's put the true God out of his thinking. You say, how do you know that? Daniel 4.30, he professes himself wise. Is not this great Babylon that I have built? You just hear it. The pride is oozing. For a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. And we're told while the word was still in the king's mouth. <laughs> oh, King Nebuchadnezzar coming from heaven. It's never a good sign, right? He becomes a fool. God literally turns him into a raving maniac. He makes him like a beast of the field, an ox who eats grass. He's wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grows like eagle's feathers, his claws, his fingernails grow out like bird's claws. And it says until seven times had passed over him, literally for seven years, he's turned into an animal. He's out in the field acting just like an ox. You know something interesting? God turned King Nebuchadnezzar into the very image of corruption that Nebuchadnezzar traded God for in his thinking when he set up his 90-foot-tall golden image that he commanded everyone to worship as God. That was Nebuchadnezzar's God. So God gave him over. He abandoned him. That's the idea. He abandoned him to the lust of his own heart, and he allowed him to reap the consequences of his sin. He literally made him insane. He took away all his dignity. Praise God he didn't leave him there. <laughs> we read that he restored him. He says, when my reason came back to me. It's kind of like uh, Luke 15, when the, prod the prodigal son, his reason returns to him. He, he wakes up. What is that? It's repentance. See, man is so depraved, he can't think straight. God must intervene in an act of grace, and help him open his heart and his mind and his eyes to the truth and give him the gift of repentance that he might see the folly of his way and recognize the true God of heaven. That's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He looked up to heaven and he recognized God. He glorified him finally. And it says that God restored his kingdom to him as previously. He restored his dignity and his worth in his own kingdom among his own people. You see the similarity with Romans 1? Um, when we read our corporate reading this morning, Brother Roy read Psalm 106. Listen to, again to verses 19 and 20. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. They changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. See, that was spoken of Israel. They changed their glory, which is the Lord himself. They put him out of their minds and instead they brought in an ox. A golden calf. You remember the account with Aaron? He fashioned it with his own hand. He said, we just threw it in to the fire and out came a golden calf. Nonsense. He fashioned it with his own engraving tool by his hand. And then Israel, they saw the works of God for 40 years. They experienced the mighty power of God with the plagues in Egypt and bringing them out through the Red Sea and then all of God's provision miraculously in the wilderness. And yet they did not believe they were unable to believe. They were turned over. They were abandoned partially to these non-functioning minds and darkened hearts. And ultimately, God dropped them all dead in the wilderness, except for two, Caleb and Joshua. The Apostle John in his, his gospel says this, that although Jesus had done so many signs before the people, they did not believe in him. You know why? that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, now pay attention to this. They could not believe. And here's why. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. 
Loved ones, this is saying the reason that people could not believe in Jesus after seeing, witnessing all the miracles that he did is because God had blinded them. God dropped that mist over their eyes because they didn't recognize him and keep him in their, in their thinking when he revealed himself through creation. He abandons them. They don't think clearly. They can't think clearly. They can't believe. They're under judicial abandonment. This is wrath. Friends, this wrath of abandonment, abandonment is not just relegated to a Babylonian king who lived five or 600 years before Christ. It's not just relegated to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness 1,500 years before Christ. It's a pattern of how God's wrath is revealed upon all ungodly and unrighteous people of all time. That's all of us apart from Christ. You see, if you're not in Christ this morning, you are still under his wrath. His wrath abides on you and you are being given over to the consequences of your sin. Some more, some less. Some of you are more restrained in your sins. Some of you are more private in your sins. No one sees them except for the Lord. But make no mistake, you're still under God's wrath. Our hope is a mediator. His name is Jesus. He's one who is the greater Moses, who would stand in the gap between God and men and bring us to God. Or like Phineas, who intervened to stop the plague that was in Israel's camp. This is why the gospel of Christ is so sweet, loved ones. Because we have a mediator who bore the wrath for his people. And his name is Jesus. And all who look to him in faith will be saved. They will be healed. Maybe not physically, that's not promised, but spiritually, your soul will be safe, well, secured in heaven. Thank God that he, by Christ, pulls us out of the muck and the mire of our own corruption and filth, or you know what? We would all be spiraling down the drain to experience the depths of our own depravity in a way that we don't even want to talk about. As Ezekiel says, but why would you die? Hear the word of the Lord and live. Hear the gospel, loved ones, which is being preached to you and live. Don't be like Israel in the wilderness who hardened their hearts against the truth and God laid them waste. Learn from that example. Open your heart and hear the word of God. You can't do it on your own, but God can. Ask him and he will. And for those of us who are saved, don't we have much to be thankful for? This is the pitiable condition that God has rescued every one of us from. And this is why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. See, we went wrong in our minds. We went wrong in our hearts. That's why in the new covenant, God gives us a new heart that might feel after God, that might love God, and a new mind where his word is written on our minds and hearts. And what's the call? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the call for all of us. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We all need to hear the word of God and be taught and ministered the word of God because it is what has the power to save us. It is the gospel. We thank God for it. So man suppresses the truth of God. How? He doesn't glorify God. He's not thankful for God. God reveals his wrath in response against the suppressors. How? By abandoning them to a non-functioning mind and to a darkened heart. And then what's the evidence that God, wrath, God's wrath is on man? Man professes himself to, to be wise, puts himself in the place of God when really he becomes a fool and he exchanges the glory of God for the lie, for that which does not profit. The gospel is good news, friends, and I trust the Lord that we will all appreciate it more and more as God grants us understanding of the ugliness and destructiveness of sin and the wrath of God on all mankind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great news that is your news, your, your message of redemption and hope that we have in Christ. 
that all who embrace him by faith, who look to him as Israel looked to that serpent that was raised up on a bronze pole, bronze serpent on a pole, who represents Christ as the one who takes our sin, who became sin for us, though he himself knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. All those who are stung and know that they are dying, who have this disease of sin and feel their corruption, if they but look to the cross, to Christ lifted up as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and believing that God will heal them through Jesus, they will be healed. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for your wonderful word. Father, thank you that even though this truth of abandonment is hard and it's it's uh, difficult to, to read and to understand and to think about. But Lord, how much sweeter the cross of Christ becomes for us as we're drawn to him as our savior to appreciate what we've been saved from. Oh God, if there's anyone here this morning who has not trusted Christ, I pray that you would work in that heart. Remove the blindness, the mist from their eyes. Give them a new heart of flesh and remove the, the heart of stone. God, restore them to a right relationship with you. Help them to believe because they can't on their own. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things. May we each one this week think of you and acknowledge you in all our ways. For you are God and you are worthy. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.